Hello and welcome to the Right on Crime podcast featuring experts from our Correctional Leadership Network. I'm your host, Scott Payton, former law enforcement, probation and parole officer, and correctional director at Right on Crime. Every day we read the headlines or watch the news about rising crime, communities fearing for their safety, and politicians offering emotional knee-jerk policies. There is no doubt that those who break the law must be held to account. The reality is that across the nation, our prisons are overcrowded and short-staffed. The Department of Corrections must first make room and then prepare those in custody for the day they return to society. Eventually, 95% will return. The good and bad of criminal justice policies ultimately come to roost at the Department of Corrections. Today, we have incredible insight, a peek behind the prison walls, from three correctional experts representing the great states of Tennessee, South Carolina, and Arkansas. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us at Right on Crime. And let me briefly introduce all three of you, and then I'll ask each of you individually to share some of your insights. From Tennessee, Commissioner Tony Parker is renowned for his successful 40-year career in the field of corrections rising from corrections officer to warden to assistant commissioner, and then appointed commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Corrections in 2016, and reappointed again in 2019. Commissioner Parker currently serves as the president of the American Correctional Association and president of the Fourth Purpose Foundation. Commissioner Parker recently became a signatory for Right on Crime. Next, from South Carolina Department of Corrections, Director Brian Sterling is a national leader in his efforts to improve the corrections industry. First appointed in 2013, Director Sterling has relentlessly worked to increase staff pay, improve conditions, and create successful reentry programming. Prior to corrections, Director Sterling worked as Chief of Staff for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and served as a South Carolina Deputy Attorney General. Arkansas welcomed Solomon Graves as the Secretary of Corrections in 2020, where he is the Executive Head of the State's Department of Corrections. Secretary Graves started in 2006 at the Division of Community Correction, and in 2007, he accepted a role at the Arkansas Parole Board, including five years as, a, as Parole Board Administrator. In 2016, Secretary Graves was named DOC Public Information Officer, and in 2019, Chief of Staff to then-Secretary Wendy Kelly until her retirement in 2020. Welcome, gentlemen. Let's start with you, Commissioner Parker, a corrections career of 40-plus years. Tell us about your experience in Tennessee and some of your most impactful challenges. Well, thanks, Scott. And one of the things you did mention, I'm recently retired, and that's a, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. Uh, well, first of all, just let me say thank you uh, to Right on Crime for having this conversation. And also, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't say thank you uh, to Solomon, to Brian, for their work in corrections and, and all the people who work in this field. Uh, for what they do each and every day. It's so important to public safety. Um, you know, my career in corrections really started when I was 19 years old as a, as a kid uh, working in a correctional facility as a correctional officer. And I've had a unique experience to really be a part of that process of corrections uh, from the early 80s and transition and see the things and the changes that took place at, in the correctional field over the years in Tennessee. Uh, it's been a blessing. I've worked with some of the best public servants I think there are. And I, I think the people who work in corrections are really some of the most dedicated public servants that you can find. One of the things, my insights really, and, and these things we'll talk about, I'm sure, but is many times just how much uh, the true mission of corrections is misunderstood and how the the things that we are responsible for in corrections, many times uh, the public and certainly lawmakers and other people in the criminal justice system 
really, uh, in my opinion, fail to understand what the real true mission of corrections is and why we should be looking and focusing on, you know, the research and evidence of what works. You know, at the end of the day, what helps us reduce recidivism? Because that is the true measure, in my opinion, of how we're doing in corrections, kind of our report card. Because a reduction in recidivism means a reduction in crime and you see uh, a safer community. So I've had that experience. And and as commissioner, uh, being able to implement some reforms in Tennessee that has really moved the needle uh, for public safety. So I just look forward to this conversation. Again, thank you for having me on, and I look forward to uh, the conversation. Thank you, Commissioner Parker, and um, and welcome to retirement. Thank you. Secretary Graves, you have perspective as a parole board member and from the Office of Secretary of Corrections. Tell us what you have witnessed in Arkansas over the past few years. So I was not cool enough to be a, a parole board member. I was... Uh, uh, did a decade as as uh, on on their staff, and I was and I'm very grateful for that experience because it it really sold me on this idea that we can't just focus on the what, which is incarceration and supervision, but we've got to focus on the how. You know, what are we doing when these individuals are in our custody? What are we doing when these individuals are under our supervision? As as Tony said, you know, it's it's about moving the needle. It's about reducing recidivism. Recidivism is not just a public safety issue, but it's also an economic development issue. It's a uh, family insecurity issue. And we've got to make sure that we're being proactive and being data informed in our approach to move that needle, reduce recidivism. So we're returning individuals back into their communities better than when they came into our custody or under our supervision. And then while we're doing that, we've got to tell our tell our stories. And that's why I'm so grateful for this opportunity uh, to join everyone this morning for what uh, Right on Crime is beginning with this conversation, because so much of what we do is misunderstood because we haven't in the past always been proactive with telling our stories, telling our successes, sharing our innovations. And when we do that, I truly believe that we're going to bring more people into our tent, more people to our side to understand the value of these evidence-based reforms. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Um, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Director Sterling, South Carolina is changing the corrections industry by improving conditions, staff compensation, and reentry programs. Tell us about the impact of these innovations. Sure. Thank you to Right on Crime for, uh, for having us. We've got a good team here today. I uh, know my either former or current co-directors very well, and they're, I know they're doing a great job in their state, or they did a great job and are very innovative. Um, coming from the Attorney General's office, it was a unique perspective in the Governor's office coming into corrections, having been on the prosecutorial side of, of things. Governor Haley, when I first took over, she sat me down and said, these folks are getting out. We need to make sure they're better than when they came in. So the first month, I was appointed in October, and I went to see the release. We release early in the morning here. So I went down to a bus station that wasn't far from my house and saw the release process. And I just have to tell you, I was I was sort of appalled by what, what I saw. There were still folks in prison uniform who just took the stripe off. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't know where they were going to lay their head that night. Um, there were prostitutes and, and drug dealers there um, who were trying to take advantage of these folks, saying, you know, if you take our services or food or, what, or drugs or whatever, you can come back tomorrow and start dealing for us. It was just a bad, bad, toxic cocktail of... Uh, very high recidivism rate. There are going to be more victims out there. So I came back to the office and I said, we need to do better. And frankly, we are. Some of the simple things we're doing is we're um, providing clothes to people. We're providing interview suits. But more than that, we're providing programming. So there's programming available. We're connecting with outside partners. Catholic Charities is finding housing, uh, looking at benefit banks to make sure that folks have the benefits when they leave. 30% of at least our population here at SCDC, and I would assume in other corrections departments, if not more, have mental health issues. 
well, they're getting treated with mental health issues while they're while they're incarcerated. They're getting medicine. They're they're seeing their their doctor or their care team. But once they leave, that shuts down. And we know what's going to happen. They're going to decompensate, and there's going to be more victims out there. They're going to come back to prison at, at a greater cost. So we're working to make sure that they get their treatment. We're doing job training. We're trying to get skills for them. One of the simplest things we're doing is teaching people how to talk about incarceration. So when you do this interview, we've got reentry um, services at every institution. For the level ones, low level, it's six months. For the higher level, it's two years. Um, simple thing is, you know, you're going to be asked, or we know they're going to be asked about their uh, their record of incarceration. And instead of lying about it, we teach them to say, look, you know, I made bad decisions when I was younger, but here's what I'm doing now. Yes, I was incarcerated, but I got my GED. I got my high school diploma. Um, here are my skills. And I just have to tell you, some of the folks that come out, some of the employees, employers that we talk to in South Carolina are thrilled to hire these folks because they want that second chance. They're desperate for that second chance and they work very hard. And what does that mean? That means a safer South Carolina. It means tax savings. It means less victims. And that's a microcosm of what we're doing. I, I could expand more. and I know um, my co-directors on this call could expand more on what we're doing, but it really is a conservative approach because we're letting people earn the tools that will make them successful and not rely on um, the government to be successful in their lives. Thank you, Director Sterling. Now I would like to ask each of you to highlight and go in a little more detail. I know we touched on a few uh, of these individual policies but highlight an individual policy, one that you've seen directly improve public safety in your state, and then tell us a little bit about the challenges you face in implementation, uh, the importance of outside support, and how you overcame these obstacles. Uh, let, let's start with Secretary Graves. Sure. Um, we had historically a disjointed approach to um, uh, re-entry and reintegration back into the community. So uh, when uh, uh, this current administration, when Go Governor Hutchison uh, took office in 2015, he really pushed this idea of we need to not just bring the state players to the table, but we also need to bring the community partners to the table, those that really do the boots on the ground work. And it seems like a uh, very basic idea but historically, we didn't have that system-wide approach um, in and out of government to reentry. Coming out of that conversation, which was uh, modeled as Restore Hope, uh, we have established uh, reentry barracks in our Division of Correction uh, that have a curriculum based on the uh, National Institute of Corrections Thinking for a Change, which is really, you know, to what we've all talked about deprogramming some of that criminal thinking, putting them in a position where they can earn that job, where they can earn that next opportunity when they're out on supervision. We're also, when we look at what can we do to leverage the communities of care across our, our state, we've established a community-based leadership model where we're now able to address uh, um, a place up to 250 inmates at any given time, up to 18 months before their parole date, out into the community in contracted facilities uh, with uh, homes that are giving them wraparound services, treatment, employment opportunity, leading them into society in a more structured process instead of what uh, Brian talked about what I've seen, what I know Tony saw in Tennessee, which is, here's this gate check and this bus pass, best of luck to you. Um, you said one thing, but I want to talk about two things real quick. And the, and the second one is simply, we've kind of revamped how we do things in Arkansas. In 2019, uh, we consolidated our cabinet agencies from 42 down to 15. Two of those cabinet agencies were correctional agencies. And what that consolidation has allowed us to do is instead of having an institutional agency and a community supervision agency, we now have this integrated correctional model here in Arkansas. So my institutional staff, my community supervision staff are at the table in meetings, having conversations every day. And we are really building upon this warm handoff concept 
here in Arkansas that there is not this culture shock when you go from incarceration to supervision. You're hearing the same conversations, same policies, same approaches to programming and supervision. Thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. And, and I certainly agree, having worked in the community correction side for, for 10 years, um, that coordination from the institution to community corrections is very important. Um, let, let's move on to um, Commissioner Parker, if you want to tell us about an individual policy uh, that happened in Tennessee that um, directly improve public safety and any of the challenges you may have faced with with that implementation. Sure. Thank you, Scott. And uh, before I do, though, I just want to comment on what uh, Solomon just said. Uh, I 100 percent agree. We call the, the coordination of the prison side and the community supervision side the seamless supervision model in Tennessee. That is the best case scenario when you can continue programs, continue the, the uh, Addressing the need side of an offender once they leave custody into the into the uh, community is a key to success. In Tennessee, um, one of the most significant uh, public safety changes we made happened once. Uh, once I become commissioner, the first thing I faced is a new uh, some new legislation called the Public Safety Act of 2016. That required uh, several things in DOC, but one of the most significant uh, aspects of that uh, legislation was the requirement of a validated risk and needs assessment uh, that we had to implement in Tennessee uh, called the Strong R. And the Strong R is a fourth generational uh, tool that we use to determine the individual risk to recidivate for people. Uh, but it also provides us the opportunity to address the needs uh, uh, of that individual that reduce criminogenic factors that are driving people to our front door. It also allowed the Department of Corrections to use graduated sanctions uh, for situations or conditions uh, in the community where people violated a rule of supervision. So in other words, it allowed DOC to put sanctions and do their own sanction process rather than sending an individual back to the courts that would, in a lot of cases, end up back in one of our facilities for non-criminal actions. Uh, we were seeing about 40% of our intake. And I get that 40% of the people who were showing up at a prison were coming back on technical violations. We were able to reduce that because of the legislation and because of the use of graduated sanctions and good supervision, risk-based supervision, which is supported by research, right? And the, the risk principle, we were able to reduce uh, the returns for technical violations by over 50%. Now that's significant over a period of five to six years. Just good work there. And all that was set in place uh, in Tennessee through legislation uh, from the General Assembly. I've been so fortunate to work for great governors, Bill Haslam, uh, who was the first governor I worked for as commissioner, and then currently Governor Bill Lee, who continues to support strong criminal justice reform that is backed by research and policy on what reduces recidivism and what moves the needle for public safety. Thank you, Mr. Commissioner. Uh, Director Sterling, same, same question, if you want to highlight an individual policy. Sure, it's hard to highlight just one. I mean, we they're, it's like building a house. Everything's based on something else. Um, ours, like Tennessee, was sentencing reform. I took over in 2013. Sentencing reform passed 2010, 2011. So, you know, really implementing the sentencing reform. We were sending a lot of folks to prison that just didn't need to be there. They needed to be out on community supervision. So we were able to close seven prisons. Our population dropped about 33%. So we could really focus on the folks that needed that programming. They needed to get their education. The average education level of someone coming into SCDC is 10th grade. And we know there's a cause and effect there. So if they can get that GED, that high school diploma, if they can go get that certificate or things of that nature, then they're employable and we'll likely never see them again. 
Um, so that's one thing. In South Carolina, we don't have uh, parole uh, underneath us. So that community supervision is under another agency. And we are meeting with them and trying to work with them to have a seamless uh, transition. Um, and we've been doing that for a while. And that, is, that has definitely been helping. One of the other things that I didn't highlight when I first um, started talking was we just got some raises. When I took over, uh, the average correctional officer salary was about $26,000 a year. And I'd go to Lowe's or Home Depot or wherever, and I would see our officers working just to make ends meet. They'd go leave here after working a 12-hour shift, change their clothes, and they'd be walking the aisles at Home Depot or Lowe's or somewhere else um, just to be able to feed their families. So um, gradually, we, we increased the salaries. And this year, with um, historic budget, um, record budget for the state, some of our officers or captains will see a 36% increase. It'll be starting off at just under $67,000. And, um, you know, our, our other officers will start off just under 50,000 front end, front line officers. Without staff, and I know we've had a national staffing crisis across the country. I mean, heck, for two years, the federal government was paying um, folks to stay home more than we could afford to pay them to come to work. Um, I think that was across the the nation. Um, so that's gone away finally. So we're having to entice people back to the workforce. But you cannot have a safe correctional environment to do programming and things of that nature without, you can do the basics, but without having the staff. So it literally just took place. People are seeing the money in their paychecks today for the first time. Um, and I think that's going to make a difference where, where there'll be a career ladder. The legislature is really investing in our security staff, they're investing in our mental health staff, our medical staff, and they're investing in programming. Governor Nikki Haley and Henry McMaster, both whom I've worked for, are really interested in the programming and making sure that South Carolina is safe. We know that when someone comes to prison, their likelihood of coming back is a lot higher than if they were just out in community supervision. So um, multiple, multiple answer to a simple question, but nothing in corrections, nothing when you're dealing with humans and criminogenic needs and things of that nature is is just simple. And, and Scott, could I have one one redirect uh, that I did I failed to mention because you had asked about some of the challenges in implementing some of these reforms. And let me just say that that is an arduous process to get these reforms in place in many cases. And I think it's uh you know you can track it back, I think, in many cases to people's, what I think is a truly a lack of understanding of what the true mission of corrections is. Um, I talked about graduated sanctions. Uh, the law allowed TDOC to use graduated sanctions, risk-based supervision. Uh, and by that, I mean, for low-level offenders in the community under supervision, the points of contact and the, the requirements of supervision standards were much less for low risk versus high risk, which, again, follows the risk principle and tells us that that's the way you reduce recidivism. You, you expand your resources, which are very hard to come by these days. You expand your resources on the high risk population to reduce recidivism. If you spend, if you over supervise a low risk offender, what you in many cases, the research will show we drive recidivism in the wrong direction. So we still have districts in Tennessee. We still have courts. We, we have DAs that fail to allow us to follow the law in many cases and use risk based supervision or uh, graduated sanctions in their district. Uh, it's a challenge. It's something that we work with. Uh, I think we in corrections have to do a better job of of communicating and explaining uh, these policies. Uh, certainly, we want to meet everybody uh, and try to explain the uh, the mission and why this makes sense uh, from a supervision standpoint. But we started these process this process in 2017. I spoke to the Commissioner of Corrections in Tennessee just yesterday, day before, and it's still a challenge today to try to get compliance with people that are in the criminal justice system to allow us to follow the law and to use these reforms that we know and that research has proven will reduce recidivism. And again, I, I think it, you track it back, you look at 
uh, people's perception of corrections and you know, are we following a retribution model where people are sent to prison to be punished every day? I would argue that their their reason they're going to prison as punishment for a crime, not to be punished every day. Our job in corrections is to take that individual, apply the science, do a good risk and needs assessment and provide evidence based programs that allow them to return to our communities and be safe and have a safer community, be more productive. At the end of the day, that's holding corrections accountable. We're looking at the bottom line, what it costs to put somebody in the community under $4 a day, a low risk offender versus $85 a day in a confined setting. At the end of the day, it makes a lot of sense to me to be smart on how we handle uh, the uh, incarcerated population in all of our states. Thank you, Mr. Commissioner, and and everyone else. Please feel free to to um, to add uh, to whatever or, or to um, build upon whatever it, you know is going on. We want this conversation to to flow. Um, and, and Commissioner, thank you for 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 the points you brought out, and and hopefully, uh, right on crime through our correctional leadership network, we'll be able to bring the voice of of correction leaders and highlight the the great things that are going on across the nation. Um, and that that leads me into our our, our next topic, and uh, I'll go back to Director Sterling. Uh, South Carolina has a 23% recidivism rate after three years. Um, 19, well, I, that is awesome. Uh, I thought 23 was great. Um, 19 is unbelievable. Um, you mentioned staff pay. Um, and with the residual consequences to our rising populations, you know, how is this creating a need for one more correctional officers? Uh, how are you and, and you touched upon it um, with, with the pay increase, but how are you handling that difficulty and filling the need? And, and what are some of the safety consequences inside the prison walls when, when you're understaffed, uh, when morale is low um, and, and when your 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 staff is just working? Too many hours, and and as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, second jobs, uh, just too much stuff going on. If you want to kind of build upon what you were mentioning earlier about the the increase in pay, so uh, our population is actually significantly down. As I mentioned, we've closed seven low level prisons. Um, we are monitoring those folks out in the community, as uh, uh, Tony said. Uh, they're not coming to SCDC. I can't imagine having to run those seven prisons along with everything else that we had to do during the lean times of hiring and staffing and retaining. When I took over, our population was around just under 25,000 uh, folks incarcerated. Now we are just over um, 16,000, about 16,400 folks incar incarcerated. I think a lot of prison populations went down because there wasn't court during COVID, but it was down to almost just over 15,000. It's ticking back up a little bit. But we know with that 19% recidivism rate, the folks aren't coming back to prison at least within three years because of what we're doing, uh, the programming, the mental health, the education, things of that nature. But if you don't have the staff to do it, then that's a problem. I think consistently across the country, you know, as I joke, um, on the buffet of the budget process throughout uh, state legislators, corrections are you know last. You don't see a lot of people who, a lot of politicians who put out stickers that say, vote for me, I gave money to corrections, education and things of that nature. But it is truly a public safety aspect. It is part of the public safety continuum. So investing in corrections, this past year with the raises I just spoke about, the General Assembly put in about $20 million of the budget towards correctional officer pay. We're putting in about 10 million. So, um, but you cannot do that programming, mental health, everything else without correctional officers. So, we're seeing a significant increase. And Nebraska is a good place to look, actually, because they just gave a significant increase a year or two ago of people not only coming in, but staying. One of the problems I would assume my co directors on this call would have is hiring people may or may not be a challenge, but retaining them is the challenge. So we've got a significant pay increase, not only for starting off, like I said, but all the way up a career ladder where you can move up and you know, as a major, make almost $80,000 a year in some very rural areas in, in South Carolina, plus 
um, some of these folks can make overtime. So investing in corrections is investing in public safety, and there'll be less victims out there if you can have the staff in there. And we know if you're standing on a on the cell block and you're just by yourself and you've got say 100, 260 or so folks that are incarcerated and you're by yourself, you know, are you likely to come back the next day? Are you likely to feel safe? But if you have someone else there and Mr. Parker was, was did this for a long time and he can speak to this, but if you have someone else there to watch your back, you're likely gonna come back the next day and feel safe and stay with corrections and keep that knowledge that makes others feel safe and work your way up. So I think funding corrections is important. Funding programming is important. Funding uh, pre-release programming, funding programming when they get out is important. So folks can really go out and be sustainable without having to rely on government money, government jobs and things of that nature, where they can go out and learn uh, skills and, and frankly, pay taxes and pay, um, be a part of their family and be present. Thank you, uh, Director Sterling. Secretary Graves, would, would you like to to kind of um, add some of your insights there from Arkansas regarding um, the need for correction officers and filling that need? Sure. Um, I, I think the first, the lead in to my answer, I'm going to say this. Corrections is part of the larger law enforcement community. Over the last few years, we have seen across the country a devaluation of law enforcement in certain sectors. Now, thankfully, I'm, I think we're starting to see the pendulum swing and we're starting to see a, uh, a more forceful and public appreciation of our law enforcement officers. We're starting to see these back to blue movements that aren't just about slogans but they're about systemic reforms to improve the profession of law enforcement. I'm sure in, in Tennessee and South Carolina, you know, they're having the same conversations we have about how do we improve the profession of law enforcement? One of the ways we do that is to improve the compensation of law enforcement. When you pay folks better, you get a better quality of folks who want to come in and stay in that profession. Well, that conversation can't just be relegated to our partners in our county sheriff departments. Those conversations can't just include our partners in our municipal police departments. They've got to include the men and women who come every day and willingly lock themselves in a concrete box for 8, 10, 12 hours a day with the individuals that society has deemed appropriate to separate from society as a way to protect the larger safety of our communities. So we got to value staff one. After we value staff, we have to understand the domino that comes from when we don't value staff. You cannot program in an unsafe facility. The next piece of that is if that warden has to choose between running running chow or running showers or uh, running pill call or uh, transportation or recreation or chapel or lawyer visits, programming those group sessions that we know are effective, unfortunately, tends to get pushed down the list of priorities that warden has to meet in order to maintain operations of their facilities. We can't sacrifice programming. But the only way we can ensure that we're not sacrificing programming is when we um, have adequate staffing levels at all of our facilities to meet all of our needs. And then the next piece, and I, and I, and I hope we can expand on this further, we've got to modernize our footprint. Because when we talk about uh, staffing, many of us are operating facilities that are 40, 50, 60, 70 I've got two institutions where we've been operating at those in those locations for over 100 years. So when you have an aging fiscal plant, that means you have to have a aging antiquated staffing model in order to meet the needs of those footprints. So when we modernize our footprint across our system, we're able to implement best practices in terms of design 
that whether it's uh, uh, audiovisual surveillance or uh, whether it's um, controlled movement systems that lessen the need through applications of technology and innovations for high cost personnel uh, policies and practices. We've got a facility that was built just after the Civil War that's still operating. So I think a lot of them are very ancient and it's also very costly. Um, a lot of tax dollars go to deferred maintenance and um, that takes away from other things that you can be doing with that money that make more sense. You know, Scott, I can I cannot remember a time in corrections when we have seen the the amount of staff shortages that we see today. When I started my career in corrections in 1983, I made about 10,600 a year. 884 somewhere around $884 a month. Uh today in Tennessee, the correctional officers start at 34,500 and because of the the work in the General Assembly and the and the administrations that have supported the need for raising that salary, uh, we're seeing a little light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still not out of that tunnel. We still have significant shortages across our facilities. And that matters, just like Solomon, just like Brian has said, it affects your ability to carry out the true mission of corrections. One of the things that, that we're trying to do at, at another group that I work with, Fourth Purpose Foundation, is to focus on staff wellness and to focus on dealing with the issues. ACA is also has a program that deals with staff wellness, and we're trying to focus and provide the right resources for this environment that these people work in each and every day, a very uh, challenging environment, one that you have to face burnout, stress, uh, the need for mandatory overtime. And these individuals, in many cases, you know, put their family second in some cases because, you know, they miss those ball games. They miss those uh, after hour events that they can't go to because of the need of the uh, of the uh, facility. You know, I remember when COVID hit, I left Nashville one day and the streets were bare, no traffic on I-40 pulled up on a parking lot of one of our correction facilities and the lot was full of vehicles. And I thought to myself, these are the true heroes. These are the heroes of, of public safety. The people who leave their families during this stressful time show up each day to work inside of our facilities to keep the public safe. That's the true model of the correctional employee. And that's why we should you know, focus on them and provide the resources that's necessary. It's difficult. It's difficult to get those resources, but I, again, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, South Carolina, and other states have worked to uh, provide those resources, and it's key for us being successful going forward uh, in completing the true mission of corrections. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I, I know we, we mentioned that certain things get cut, uh, our programming gets gets diminished. Um, when, when there's a shortage in staffing. And uh, when I was a probation and parole officer, we had to fill in um, at DOC, one, so that visitation could take place. And I think once as officers, we saw the importance of visitation, saw the faces on the family members and those inside the um, the, the offenders. It's just, you know, remarkable, uh, the value of visitation. And, you know, it's unfortunate if that critical part of their rehabilitation uh, is diminished because there, there's a shortage of, of officers. And let, let's move into um, another quick topic here. Um, we would like to hear each of your perspective on the importance of, of compliance credits, good time credits. I know we spoke about staffing shortage and safety for, for the officers, but how do compliance or good time or, or whatever your state uh, labels it, uh, how does this help reduce recidivism um, is it effective for nonviolent or, or even on violent offenders? And, and how does this benefit the, the safety of your, your officers? Um, we'll, we'll start with, with Secretary uh, Graves. Sure. In Arkansas, we call it a meritorious good time. Uh, and our uh, meritorious good time programming has gone through di different iterations, but it has its, generous, uh, its, its genesis in the early 1970s. Um, 
what we have found that it is one of the most effective tools we have to incentivize good behavior and compliance with our institutional rules. One of the most dangerous things you can have is someone in a correctional setting that has no incentive to follow the rules. They will dash our staff. They will flash our staff. They will physically attack our staff, verbally degrade our staff if we don't have some kind of tool to encourage their compliance. And that's what Meritorious Good Time does for us. Um, we have a, um, uh, a pocket of offenses that aren't eligible for Meritorious Good Times. By and large, those are high-level violent offenses, which makes perfect sense. Uh, but for those that are eligible, you can you can move up your parole eligibility date by up to half with Meritorious Good Time in Arkansas. And the inmates know that. And they want to, instead of uh, having to do potentially 10 years on an eligible offense before they can be transferred to community supervision. They want to be able to get home or at least uh, go before the parole board at five years. So they're working toward that. They're doing what they need to do to maintain that good time. And it, and it holds them accountable. It gives them hope. It also gives the state that stick we need to sometimes nudge, nudge them along to where we want them to be. Thank you. Uh, Director Sterling, um, or yes, Director Sterling, would you like to add anything to good time or, or earn compliance credits? I think just as Solomon said, if you strip a man or a woman of everything, they have nothing left. They have no hope. You have to keep the hope there. You have to keep the hope that it, and the carrot to make sure that they behave while they're here and incentivize them, not only on good time credits, but incentivize them to go to education, go to programming and things of that nature. One of the things that um, I changed never really made sense to me, but you could potentially lose um, early on you know, if you came in and maybe hadn't figured things out, hadn't fully grown up. We know the male brain at least doesn't fully develop until it's 25. My wife may say it's a little bit old, longer than that. Um, but um, so, you know, you come in at 22 and you lose all your good time credits because we kind of calculate that at the beginning of your sentence. Say, all right, here's your sentence. But if you behave and do everything. 10-year sentence, you can get out in this amount of time. Um, and then they're gone. So I went to the wardens and um, our prisons director here, and I said, you know, if someone messed up 10 years ago, we're still holding them um, accountable for that. And I understand that. But if they've shown they've behaved, you know, who better than the warden or the captain or the major to know that those folks can get those credits back? Because once they were gone, they were gone and they couldn't earn them back. And as Solomon said, you know, that's that incentive is gone. We've basically stripped that from them. So that's one thing that we're doing here. We're allowing the wardens to see, you know, hey, you've behaved. I'm going to call you in and say, um, you know, you're getting your credits back and you're going to go through a reentry program and go home. We do have the 85 percenters who can only earn down to 85 percent. And, you know, there is that incentive to earn down to 85 percent. I think good time is important. I think education uh, credits are important. It's something that can be taken away, but it's something that can be earned back. I always like to say, you know, when I was younger, my dad would send me to my room, but he wouldn't send me there for the rest of the night or, or what have you, if I if I'd behave, depending on what I did. But if I'd behave, I went up there and was doing homework or what have you, if I'd misbehave, he might let me out a little bit early. And that's kind of how I based it. It's a simplistic way of looking at things, but it's just human nature to want to um, get that incentive to behave. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Parker, would you like to add, I know in Tennessee this past session, um, there were some changes to how this operates. Um, so if you want to comment on that and the importance of what um, Director Sterling and, and Secretary Graves spoke about as well. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Um, Unfortunately, uh, as you mentioned, uh, this last session, uh, the legislature in Tennessee enacted truth in sentencing, uh, which basically removed all good time credits and program credits from uh, the Department of Corrections, a tool that is critical to the mission of the department, just like you've heard uh, Solomon and Brian speak about here uh I would say 98% of the directors you talk to are going to have the same uh, opinion here because at the end of the day, in that correctional environment, 
correctional staff, we need the tools. We need every tool available to us. And Brian mentioned this. This is human behavior. This is this is controlling people's attitudes, uh, incentivizing good behavior, incentivizing the uh, participation in programs. Uh, I was against truth in sentencing. I, I vocally spoke out against that. The governor was against truth in sentencing legislation in Tennessee, uh, but the legislature did pass it. Uh, what this is going to require uh, our staff to do is, you know, try to supplement, try to find ways to incentivize people to take evidence-based programs, to take uh, participate in those programs that we know reduce recidivism. Uh, and also the, the behavior piece, you know, again, if, if you're dealing with individuals that in some cases they can't see the benefits two, three years out, you know, when you're providing these monthly credits, they understand the credit of getting six days credit at the end of that month for good behavior and programming, uh, attending the classes and programming. And you'll have people who really don't understand corrections, who've never set foot in a prison, tell you, well, they're incarcerated. You need to make them go to class regardless. Well, that really doesn't work. You have, they have to want to attend. You have to be able to incentivize that participation for them to really get the benefits of programming. What a lot of people don't understand, and both of these directors here this morning has mentioned this, these program credits and incentives were sitting there in a uh, in a with a tool that we could also take away. So someone who had earned six months or a year of program credits or behavior credits that commits a serious offense, such as an assault in the facility, they could have those two years of credits removed because of that conduct. So goes that tool also when we implement the policies that we've seen. So I think it's unfortunate. I think it, uh, it's not going to be good for public safety at the end of the day. I think we in corrections and just like this with right on crime, I think we're doing a great job of trying to help inform people about these policies and why it matters, why it should matter to victims. But in a lot of cases, your DAs, your courts and all uh, are against it because it's, in my opinion, it's easy to get elected on a tough on crime mantra. Uh, I think you can go with that. And but we have to be smart on crime. We have to know the, the resources and, and what these policies do at the end of the day to how they affect recidivism rates, how they affect new victims uh, in our uh, in our communities once these people are released. That's what we should be focused on. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, the executive director for Right on Crime and, and Julie and, and others have made this statement. You see criminal justice, justice reform sacrificed, right, on the altar of politics. And many, many times it comes down to politics. We need to focus on the bottom line, reducing recidivism, holding government accountable for what we're spending in our prison systems, making sure that we're putting people back in the communities that has the best benefit and the best opportunity to be successful. Because at the end of the day, that's what affects positive um, criminal justice reform and reduces recidivism and reduces crime in our communities. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, Secretary Graves, you, you made a great point in, in the beginning where you talked about recidivism and how that relates to economic development. Um, we know that 95% of, of most of the individuals that are going in are going to come back out. Uh, so what are, are you doing in Arkansas uh, that, that strengthens that importance of working with local communities, working with the business leaders, employers, and even government agencies that are already doing some of the services that these individuals need when they're released. So we're not recreating the will, but making the most effective use of the monies we have. And, and I think uh, Director Sterling hit on it several times. We don't want government to, to, to always foot this bill. Um, that relationship and partnership with the community leaders, with our business leaders is, is very important. So if you want to expound on the economic development part uh, of the programming and what you're doing inside the walls to to help when they make it to the outside. 
Sure. In Arkansas, we have a 3.2% unemployment rate. We have, uh, I was in a, a meeting with our commerce there a few weeks ago, and he said we have, in Arkansas, we have two applicants for every vacant job in the state right now. We cannot afford to throw away any segment of our potential workforce. And that's historically what we've done when we've created these barriers to employment for uh, the formerly incarcerated, whether it's through occupational barriers or whether it's through um, ineffective uh, skills development while they're incarcerated. So we're doing our part. Um, I, I recently uh, uh, penned a op-ed in the uh, uh, um, trade magazine for our State Truckers Association talking about the work we're doing around skills development. I was on a call earlier this week with the president of our state chamber of commerce to talk through what does a collaborative relationship look like between the DOC and our state chamber to incentivize their membership to hire my offenders. We're looking at how we're modernizing our training. Uh, we've, uh, over the last year, really made a uh, very sizable multi-million dollar investment in modernizing our career technical educational instruction within our correctional school district to ensure that when a uh, inmate is going through one of those CTE courses, they're not getting training that makes sense to us on the inside, but they're getting training that industry has said we need our workforce to have these skills when they're coming to us to apply for jobs. Uh, we're also uh, partnering with our workforce services division to make sure that we have uh, those uh, upskilling programs, whether it's in a virtual or in-person delivery model within our facilities. Thank you. That that is that is awesome, um, and and that's kind of one of the areas that that where my passion lies in in that economic development. And um, as a probation officer, used to quote unquote, force people to to tell them they had to work and get a job without realizing the barriers and all the issues related to them actually securing um, employment. Director Sterling, we mentioned earlier um, several times about, uh, I even mentioned in the beginning that the good and bad policies that, that come through, they, they come home to roost um, at, at DOC. In, in your experience, when lawmakers discuss criminal justice policy. Do you think the conversation is properly informed by correctional expertise? And do you think the point of view from correctional expertise is given the necessary weight and consideration uh, as say like we do for prosecutors, judges, or other um, criminal justice interest groups? And can I pivot back to um, the, the programming uh, for a second? Because I'm very proud of what we've done here. Um, on programming, and then I'll talk about criminal justice policy. But I think any corrections department in the country, we talk about this at, at our national meetings about programming. Um, you know, when I took over, our, our recidivism rate was over 30%. Again, I mentioned that we're down to 19% for years coming back. But we did invite other government entities in. We invited Department of Employment Workforce. We talk about training. We've got six-month training for our low-level folks. We've got 18 or 24-month training where they come in. They do mock interviews, resume writing, simple things as soft skills, shake a hand, how to look someone in the eye, how to tie a tie. A lot of folks just don't know how to dress for an interview. We have interview suits. We have clothes closets at every institution where people can um, donate clothes. I, I could spend a lot of time. I think everybody on this call could spend a lot of time to benefit banks. There used to be a $50 fee. Um, Scott, as you said, you know there were barriers. And, and what I think correctional leaders are doing across this country are knocking those barriers down. A simple barrier was there was a $50 fee to get a license if you're a violent offender. I understand why law enforcement may need to know if they're interacting with a violent offender and there's a demarcation on that um, on that ID or license, but that $50 fee might as well have been a million dollars for someone that's been in prison for 20 years. Guess what happens if you don't have an ID or you don't have a license? I mean, you can't really do anything. You can't even go in the federal courthouse. Um, to you know, or a federal building to apply for a job. I'll tell a quick story where we signed an MOU with the Department of Motor Vehicles, and we have a person that's trained at the Department of Motor Vehicles who all the departments across the um, state know, or all their um, their offices know that if someone comes in and they're having a problem getting a 
driver's license if they call this person, this person can walk them through. Had a quick, in, quick, quick example, but we used to tell people at corrections, once you leave, don't call us again. We don't want to hear from you. We're done with you. Made no sense to me. I mean, sometimes we're their, literally their only lifeline. I mean, you know, some of the folks that work in prisons, you know, they want to be in law enforcement, but part of good law enforcement is developing community relations and, and developing those relationships. And inside prisons, it's the same thing. Outside law enforcement, inside law enforcement, same thing. Guy goes to the DMV, uh, goes up to the window. He's with his sister. Um, you know, he's on community supervision, so he's not likely to come back. But if something goes wrong, he's probably coming back to prison for a very long time. He's very frustrated with the DMV process. And, you know, I joke with my friend Kevin Schwedo over at um, the Department of Motor Vehicles that a lot of people can be frustrated with the process going in and everything else. And, you know, he started to get frustrated and mad. And finally, he says, hey, you know, the director of uh, programming gave me her card and said, call if I have a problem. So as opposed to getting arrested, she calls uh, over to DMV after the sister called and said, hey, go to window number six. There's a lady there. She's going to be on the phone with headquarters. They're going to walk you through this process. Well, everybody else was telling him he did not have the proper paperwork to get that driver's license. They walked him through, asked him a couple of questions. He had everything he needed, and he walked out with that driver's license, never to be heard from again by the Department of Corrections or have a bad interaction with law enforcement, which, you know, can lead to arrest and things of that nature. So uh, we've got drug and alcohol. We've got peer counselors. We've got Catholic charities for housing. Uh, Austin Wilkes Society helps out with programming. We've got Voc Rehab that I'm in, Prison Fellowship. I'm going through this pretty quickly. Reemerge. Um, we've got Goodwill, and we've got other state agencies that are helping out. Uh, we have tablets. It's very hard to hire folks inside corrections, teachers, professors, and things of that nature. So we're harnessing technology. I don't know about Tennessee and Arkansas if they have tablets or not. Uh, Fox News erroneously reported that we're giving them iPads. They had a former sheriff who was out west who was kind of infamous sheriff say, I should be fired for giving them iPads. You know, I'm sorry that Fox News didn't take the time to do the research or call us. And they just ran with the story because it was something that would get a lot of uh, a lot of play. But that's not what we have. We have education tablets that do allow for some entertainment on them. But we also have education on there so they can learn while they're here. Um, you know, a tablet versus not having a teacher is very important. Criminal justice policy. I would say maybe South Carolina is unique. We have a very close state. Um, people know me, they know the department, and they'll call over here and say, hey, Brian, what do you think? We're looking at this. What do you think about this? I've had a couple um, things where some folks wanted stuff uh, filed. And, and you know, frankly, they called over and said, Brian, we hear you're for this. What do you think? It doesn't sound like something you'd be for. I say, well, you know, I'm not for that. And here's why. And here's what we're doing, which makes more sense. Let's do it this way. We've got a sentencing reform commission. Uh, um, you know, it's a bipartisan commission. It's got a bunch of folks on there that really know criminal justice. So I feel like developing the relationships and the directors across the country who are there for a while really have those relationships where they can call and say, hey, you know, let's do this or this would make more sense. It makes prison safer. And I, I know it makes the community safer. Sorry about pivoting back, but I'm really proud of the work that um, I haven't done, but my folks have done, and I'm proud of the work that um, the folks out there have done, and frankly, the community's done, because they're hiring these folks and making the state safer. No, we, we definitely welcome welcome those comments, and, and again, I, I want to thank each one of you. Uh, I, I know your schedules are busy. Uh, I know you have a lot going on. We have just a few minutes left. Uh, I want to ask each of you to give us some optimism for the future of corrections. Uh, what can we do in our own communities to protect to promote public safety. Uh, let's start with you, Commissioner Parker. Well, thanks, uh, Scott, again for having us. But, um, you know, just to touch on something that Brian and Solomon both have mentioned, uh, I think, it, you know, if I'm most excited about the opportunities for effective reentry and the conversations we're having today. Effective reentry is so important and bringing people to the table and helping uh, local government uh, business leaders. Others understand really why it's important and why it matters to them for people to be successful coming back into these communities. 95% of our population will be returning. 
One of the things we did in Tennessee that I found was very effective was we conducted reentry simulations across the state for a lot of metropolitan areas where we brought in local government officials, we brought in business leaders, we bought we brought in civic organizations, and we ran them through a simulation of what uh, someone reentering society had to go through to get a license to get their documents, uh, people who didn't have transportation to get to medical appointments or to court in some cases, and helping the community understand what reentry, the difficulties and the barriers to effective reentry that we still face today are. People see that and they have no idea in many cases, but we also went a step further and explained to them why effective reentry mattered to them personally why it mattered to their community, how effective reentry and working through the barriers to allow people to come back and be successful, find a meaningful job, get transportation to work, why it made a difference for public safety in their community and it affected them personally. That moved the needle in many ways across Tennessee. I think we need to do more of that. I'm excited about these conversations we're having today uh, and the ones that we'll have in the future because when people are better informed about the true mission of corrections, we'll see enhancements in public safety and we'll see a more effective correctional uh, system across the country. So thank you again for having us, Scott. Thank you, Commissioner Parker. Um, my, my neighbor to the north, um, Secretary Graves, if you want to share some optimism um, about the future of corrections. Sure. Uh, my optimism in the future is that we survived the last two years. And the fact that we survived the last two years of a uh, global pandemic is rooted in, in the uh, fact that we all figured out how to do corrections differently. Tony said it perfectly. We didn't shut down. Right? We may have in different pockets across the country reduced populations, but we didn't shut down. The lights were still on throughout COVID. So because we showed ourselves that we can do different, my challenge to our staff here in Arkansas has been let's sustain that same mindset that we can program differently. We can supervise offenders differently. We can run facilities differently. We can develop out of the box policies that allow us to meet our core mission of being a public safety resource for the state but in a different way, because we've proven to ourselves that we can push ourselves out of our comfort zones. I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation. I said in the beginning with my introductory comments, one of the most important things we can do as correctional leaders is tell our own story by speaking with our own voices. We've got to quit allowing folks like what Brian talked about with a uh, uh, national media outlet that just went and ran a story on their own. You know, my challenge to my comms team has been, let's quit waiting on the media to pick up a news release. Let's invest in our own storytelling, whether it's in social media or whether it's in leveraging relationships like this through podcasting with national organization that allows us to speak with our own voice. When we tell our own stories, when we talk about the pride that we have uh, with the work that our staff is doing, we're going to continue to move that needle. We're going to continue to garner support for our work long time. So thank you to you, Scott, and thank you to Right on Crime for this opportunity. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. And um, I, I'm definitely optimistic about, uh, about the future of Arkansas, um, Tennessee, and and now South Carolina, if uh, Director Sterling, if you want to wrap it up and, and let us know what you're optimistic about there in South Carolina. Sure, I'm optimistic on, on several fronts. When uh, Tony was talking you know, about how to safely have someone reenter society, one of the things I like to say is 85-5 and you. 85% of the folks that come to prison are out in under five years, and they're amongst you. So one of the stories I tell when I go talk to Rotary Clubs and things of that nature, I say, we have a choice. I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and think back to Thanksgiving or Easter or some family gathering, Fourth of July. And I want you to take the people that are sitting around the table, your dad, your mom, uh, your your grandchild or something like that, and put them out in the community. Put them at that bus stop. Put them at the library. 
you have two people that can sit next to them. One person has been sentenced to prison. They've sat in their cell the entire time. They're no better off than when they came. They've met some people who could help them further their criminal career, and they have no hope. And most likely, they don't know where they're going to sleep that night. They're desperate, and they likely have mental health issues. Or you could have someone that's connected with their family who's seeking treatment for mental health, has a career, not just a job, knows where they're going to sleep, and is connected with their family. Now, you make the choice. And when you say it that way, the light goes on. When you personalize it, the General Assembly will give you money. Taxpayers will not have a problem giving you money. I'm excited about the conversations that we have around the table at our national meetings. I think everybody's rowing in the right direction. I think we're telling a good story. I think we're helping, um, although there's an uptick in crime, um, I think we're helping make things safer. We had a press conference one time and I had a reporter ask me, it was a fair question. Um, you know, there's an uptick in crime. What do you say about that? And I said, well, can you imagine if we weren't doing all the stuff that we're doing inside corrections right now across this country, how much higher and how many more victims there would be. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the future uh, of what we're doing at the Department of Corrections throughout this country. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate you giving us a voice and a platform to talk about the great things that folks are doing, not only just in Tennessee and Arkansas and South Carolina, uh, but across the country. And we're just we're just the, the people that speak for the department. There are hundreds and thousands and thousands of people out there that are doing this work. As you know from your previous job, Scott, uh, every single day they are living it and they are helping make not only the prison safer, but the community safer also. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Director Sterling. Thank you, Secretary Graves. Thank you, Commissioner Parker, for joining us on our inaugural podcast of the Correctional Leadership Network at Right on Crime. Follow the links to find out more about these issues and how conservative criminal justice reform can make a difference at rightoncrime.com.